to the book of Romans. We return this morning and to the 16th chapter. We'll take up at uh, Romans 16 at verse 1 and read through the 16th verse. Interestingly, we have come to a passage of Scripture this morning that uh, lies right now at the heart of a controversy now simmering away within our own denomination, the uh, PCA. Some of you will know exactly of what I speak because you are well familiar with the debate over Paul's meaning in verse 1, where he speaks of Phoebe using the Greek word diakonon, which could easily be translated deacon. And now you all have an idea about the question at hand. Should the church ordain female deacons? This uh, question lay at the bottom of a long debate at uh, the General Assembly of our denomination this past summer over whether or not to erect a study committee to consider the question. And I anticipate the debate over female deacons will continue into next year's assembly too, and probably long after that. So Romans 16 verse 1 has been on the lips of many of our church's uh, ministers and elders these days. But uh, the debate, I fear, has had the unfortunate effect of robbing from us the beauty and the depth and power of what is being said here. Uh, The real significance of Paul's list of faithful saints. May we not miss it this morning, and let us pray that that will be the case. Our Father in heaven, as always... In coming to thy word, we recognize our, our weakness and our need of your spirit, the same spirit who inspired these words when first Paul dictated them, who was there with him and is with us here now to illumine these words to us, to write them upon our hearts and help us to live according to them. And for your church, Father, to be more and more conformed to the glories of your truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Romans 16, beginning at verse 1. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Sancria, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Now, there are many interesting people Uh, listed in this uh, chapter, this greeting from Paul, not the least of whom, of course, is Phoebe. And we don't know anything about her, any more that is about her than what we're given right here, but we are given enough that we may certainly draw some conclusions and even throw in a bit of uh, biblical speculation. The general consensus of the scholarship is that Phoebe is the one who carries this letter now from Paul to Rome, to the Christians at Rome, commended to the Romans as she is by the apostle and obviously traveling to Rome. It's not unreasonable to imagine that she is the bearer of this epistle. Her name is actually a pagan one based on a name given to the god Apollo in that day, but there is nothing pagan about Phoebe Herself, she is a true and faithful Christian. 
and she is to be received that way according to Paul's command. No reference is made here to a husband, which leads us to believe that she was likely unmarried and probably a a prominent woman. Uh, Some believe that she was likely a woman of business. She must certainly have been somewhat wealthy to uh, travel the way she uh, was. And indeed, Paul describes her in verse 2 as a patron to many, including herself, himself. Just as important as her character in this particular instance is the preciousness of the task with which Phoebe is entrusted to carry God's own word to God's people. Just think about the task that Phoebe had and fulfilled. A great work indeed. Donald Gray Barnhouse of a Bible study our fame says that, quote, there was never a greater burden carried by such tender hands. The theological, manu- the theological history of the church through the centuries was in the manuscript which she brought with her. The Reformation was in that baggage. The blessing of multitudes in our day was carried in those parchments. Picking up at verse 3. Greet Prisca and Achilla, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Now what we know about most of the people in this list we gain from this chapter here. Of course, uh, Priscilla and Achilla are exceptions to this. We've read about them before, haven't we, in other places in the Scripture. As a matter of fact, they're mentioned no less than six times in the New Testament. We hear of them first in the 18th chapter of Acts. Here I defer to William Barclay, who observes that Prisca and Aquila have previously been resident in Rome, but to Claudius had issued an edict in A.D. 52 banishing Jews from Rome. Prisca and Aquila have, had, had settled in Corinth. They were tent makers, which was also uh, Paul's own trade, and he had found a home with them. When Paul left Corinth and went to Ephesus... Prisca and Aquila went with him and settled there. The very first incident which is related of them is characteristic of them. There came to Ephesus that brilliant scholar Apollos. But Apollos had not at this time anything like a full grasp and appreciation of the Christian faith. So Aquila and Prisca took him into their house and gave him friendship and instruction in the Christian faith. From the very beginning, Prisca and Aquila were people who kept an open heart and an open door. That uh, open heart and open door to which Barclay refers continues wherever we find these marvelous people, this grand couple. Obviously, they had made their way back to Rome in the meantime, where Paul writes now to greet them, probably returning after Claudius' banishment of the Jews had expired. 
but not before a remarkable uh, set of movements around the world of that day. Here is uh, Barclay again. Prisca and Achilla lived a curiously nomadic and unsettled life. Achilla himself had been born in Pontus in Asia Minor. We find them resident first in Rome, then in Corinth, then in Ephesus. But wherever we find them, we find that their home is a center of Christian fellowship and service. From the home of Prisca and Achilla, wherever they were, there radiated friendship and fellowship and love. Picking up now at the middle of verse 5. Greet my beloved Epanetus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachys. Greet Apellus, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman, Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphena and Tryphosa. There may be in the apostle's mind here a small sort of irony. Maybe we can imagine a grin coming to Paul's face. These two ladies' names, Tryphena and Tryphosa, came from a root that means to live delicately or daintily. And so here Paul commends the hard work of delicate and dainty. No one is exempt from hard work in the kingdom of God, even ladies who are known for their femininity and their feminine beauty. Picking up in the middle of verse 12. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Now why should Persis be greeted for the work she had done in the Lord. Well, it is imagined that she might well now be an older woman by the time of the writing of this letter, and so she was not able in some ways to continue the hard labor that once she had done in the Lord. I will tell you, however, from my own personal and pastoral experience, uh, limited as uh, those are, that it has been, in my experience, the hard, hard work of a couple of older mothers in Israel in prayer that I am convinced has carried me in the pastorate these years and has been the proving of God's strength made perfect in Weakness. Verse 13, greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. I can't help but pause here, uh, but because of some fascinating work that uh, William Barclay, again, has done with these two, a theory he has developed that holds a great deal of plausibility. I'll let him say it in his own words. He writes, there is 
one of the great hidden romances of the New Testament behind the name of Rufus and of his mother, who was also a mother to Paul. It is obvious that Rufus is a choice spirit and a man well known for his work and saintliness in the Roman church. And it is equally obvious that Paul felt that he owed a deep debt of gratitude to the mother of Rufus for the kindness he had received from her. Who is this Rufus? We read of one Simon a Cyrenian who was compelled to carry the cross of Jesus on the road uh, to Calvary. And this Simon is described as the father of Alexander and Rufus. Now, if a man is identified, Barclay continues, by the names of his sons, it means that although he himself may not be personally known to the community to whom the story is being told, the sons are. Rufus was the son of that Simon, Barclay says, who carried the cross of Jesus. That must have been a terrible day for Simon. He was a Jew. He came from far off Cyrene in North Africa. No doubt he had scraped and saved for half a lifetime to celebrate the Passover in, in Jerusalem, even just one Passover. He came and as he entered the city on that day with his heart full of the greatness of the feast which he was going to attend, suddenly a flat of a Roman spear touched him on the shoulder. He was pressed into Roman service. He found himself carrying a criminal's cross. How the resentment must have blazed in his heart. How angry and bitter he must have been at this terrible indignity. All the way from Cyrene for this. To have come so far to sit at the glory of the Passover... And for this dreadful and shameful thing to have happened. No doubt he meant as soon as he reached Calvary to fling the cross down and to stride away with loathing in his heart. But something must have happened. On the way to Calvary, the spell of this broken figure must have laid its tendrils around his heart. He must have stayed to watch. And that figure on the cross drew Simon to himself forever and ever. He came to sit at the Jewish Passover. And he went away a slave of Christ. He must have gone home. And he must have brought his wife and sons into the same experience as he had himself. Verse 14. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobus, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister, and Olympus, And all the saints who are with them. 
Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. How much more could be said, of course, about these individuals, many of them, although most of it is too speculative to be uh, suitable for our purposes this morning, and we could no doubt draw many lessons from this list of greetings and commendations. We will pay attention, however, this morning with the time that is left to only one, the role of women in the Christian church. As I said a little while ago, there is today a controversy over the ordination of women to the office of deacon in the church, and particularly in our own denomination. And everyone has an eye on this first verse of Romans 16, in which Phoebe is called by that word that we could translate a deacon. Now, this controversy is nothing new. Uh, though it has no doubt been aggravated in our own day by the sexual revolution of the 1960s and the uh, rise of uh, a so-called feminist movement in our uh, culture and in the church. I call it uh, so-called feminist uh, movement or feminism because the movement is anything but an emphasis on uh, femininity and what is feminine. I read some years ago in World Magazine in a column that uh, you might just as well call a movement among cats to be as much as possible like dogs, uh, felinism, as describe the egalitarian direction of our day as feminism. Feminine is the last thing that feminists want to be and want to be considered. Well, today in our beloved denomination, there are many voices, many officers in the church, ministers and elders who would have us change our stance concerning the ordination of women to the office of deacon. And you might be surprised to hear, as I read in a written history of our denomination that one of you recently and generously gave to me, that the strongest influences in favor of this change in our uh, denominational uh, practices may be traced back to a denomination that came into the PCA in 1982, the denomination of which this church was a member, the old Reformed Presbyterian Church Evangelical Synod, or R-P-C-E-S. Not long before joining the PCA, the denomination of which this church was a member came very, very close to opening the office of deacon to women. But uh, instead of changing the constitution of the church to allow for this change, uh, the R-P-C-E-S did this. Uh, It gave allowance, authorization to the churches to employ the term deaconess with reference to women who, though not ordained, were nonetheless set apart for diaconal-type ministry. Now, this uh, prompted two uh, ministers in the RPCES, one of whom is a member of our own presbytery to this day, the Reverend Tom Jones, to write a spoof 
about that decision. They presented it in song, and the lyrics went like this. And as for all the ladies whose service is so famed, they can still perform the functions, they just cannot have the name. (laughs) Well, spoofs notwithstanding, a growing number of churches, some very prominent in our denomination have enlisted what they call deaconesses, and this has reignited the debate. And where should those who desire to ordain women to the office of deacon go but to this very passage? Actually, they go to a couple of them, and uh, this one, and then the famous list of uh, qualifications for elders and deacons in 1 Timothy 3. I will uh, tell you that... uh, The arguments offered from these passages in favor of ordaining women to the office of deacon are not very impressive. Uh, To argue from this verse in Romans 16, where the word diakonon is used to speak of Phoebe, really fails to prove anything uh, because, as it is widely known and agreed, the uh, word is used often in the scripture. In fact, most often simply to mean a servant, as the ESV translates it here. Phoebe is a servant in the church and to the church, and a remarkable one at that. But that doesn't make her, and nor does it require that she should be, an office bearer in the church. Ah, but it is argued... uh, Here the word deacon is in the masculine gender. Well, yes, it is. But my friend, it always occurs in the New Testament in the masculine gender. And what is more, it is also often used to refer to ministers in the church. But that doesn't make Phoebe a minister any more than it makes her a deacon. Well, the advocates of female ordination to the office of deacon continue. They say, well, 1 Timothy 3 speaks of women right in the middle of that qualification uh, description for deacons. And yes, it most certainly does. But the uh, most natural reading there is that deacons are men and that the reference in 1 Timothy 3.11 is to the wives of deacons who will serve, no doubt, alongside their deacon husbands. What is more, in the very next verse in that list in 1 Timothy 3, Paul goes on to call the qualified deacon the husband of one wife. Now, take and add to that the fact, or fact it is, that the first deacons in the New Testament were specifically and deliberately men in Acts 6, where the Greek speaks unambiguously about choosing men to care for the widows, and that in a day when the sexes did not mingle the way they do today. If, as the argument goes today, we need women deacons in order to serve the needs of women, well, then the apostles apparently totally missed the point 
in Acts chapter 6, where the entire ministry for which they deliberately appointed men was to women. And then there's the argument, finally, that's tossed around uh, today, that uh, deacons do not have authority in the church. And because that's the issue, that, as Paul says, he does not allow a woman to teach or have authority over a man in the church. Uh, Therefore, women should be allowed to take this non-authoritative, service-centered office. But who says that deacons don't have authority? Not the Bible. The deacons in Acts 6 are are set apart to a particular kind of authority by the apostles. It may not have been the same authority that is exercised by a minister or by elders, but it is authority to be sure. Deacons exercise real authority as they make decisions that affect people's lives and the entire church. And the church owes them honor and respect just as they do the other officers of the church. But you say, did not even John Calvin have deaconesses? women who are particularly given to service in the church in Geneva. And are not such ladies found often in the history of the church? Yes, Calvin did. And yes, they often are. But Calvin never confused these faithful women for ordained deacons. All of that now brings me to the positive side, and that's really where... I would have us go this morning. We could hear arguments against uh, women deacons all day long. But wouldn't we much rather hear about faithful women, about women who have served the church, served God's kingdom in powerful ways, who have literally steered the kingdom of God by and through their faithful service over all of these centuries. I call them, as you saw in the title to the sermon this morning, Deaconing Women. What I mean, of course, is women who serve, like Phoebe, serving women, we might call them, just as we would call upon the men, all of the men of this congregation, whether they bear office or not, to be deaconing men, that is, serving men. Consider this morning with me particularly the deep and indelible effects that deaconing women have left in the kingdom of God through their faithful service. Paul here mingles their names with the names of men in Romans 16, and he does so, did you notice this, without distinction, without distinction. As far as the contributions of these women to the church are concerned, they are every bit as important, every bit as worthy of note, every bit as valuable, every bit as glorifying to God 
as the contributions of any man. In a day when women were left in the shadows by every other religion, unmentioned in anything important, used in many of those religions as mere objects in religious rituals, Paul, over and again and again, praises and commends the faithfulness of women in the church. Where did he learn this? You know where he learned it. He learned it, of course, from his master, Jesus Christ, who treated women according to the dignity with which they were invested by their very maker. We could spend the rest of this day, you know we could, just listing the names of woman after woman after woman in the Bible without whose faithfulness it is not too much to say the entire church would have been lost. Abigail, the wise wife of Nabal, saved the day when her husband was so foolish. Or think of Deborah, or of Naomi, or of Ruth, and of Esther. And on in the New, into the New Testament, it's the, it's the same story. As we enter now into the Advent season, we will be reminded of Mary, and of Elizabeth, and of Anna. In Paul's day, it was Lydia, Phoebe, and a host of others, not only here in Romans 16, the several women who are named, but in his other letters, too, without, uh, or rather, whom he cannot stop from praising, and that lavishly for their faithful service. Though denied the offices of minister and elder and deacon in the Bible, yet in the entire Bible, Women were called and gifted to be prophetesses, God's own spokesman to the world. Miriam, Moses' sister, was the first of such prophetesses to be named. And following her, we have Deborah. We have Isaiah's wife and Huldah. Remember her, the wife of the, the keeper of the royal wardrobe who declared the will of God to King Josiah when the law was found in the temple? To whom did the priests and the, and the officials from the royal court go? With whom did they consult to find out what they should do that day? They went to a woman and they sought her counsel. Continues into the New Testament. Joel's prophecy is fulfilled at Pentecost that sons and daughters would prophesy. Remember Philip's four prophesying daughters, the prophetesses, and the women who prophesied in Corinth. Women sang and danced in Israelite worship. Miriam and Deborah composed the oldest songs preserved for us in Holy Scripture. Women also partook equally with men in the sacrificial worship, the Passover and the other feasts, as well as the sacrifices of the temple, though they weren't required to go, as were their fathers and brothers and husbands. In Christian worship in Corinth, 
women prayed. And where the gift of prophecy was given by God's Spirit, they prophesied. In all places, women stood with men, sometimes in the place of men, in the teaching and in the nurturing of their children. In the Proverbs, a virtuous woman speaks with wisdom and faithful instruction is on her tongue. Wise sons in the Proverbs learn never to forsake their mother's teaching. And wise fathers tell their boys, all of their children, the same today. Back into the New Testament, we find the gospel advancing on the backs of women in connection with Jesus' ministry and then the apostles. Paul is called to Macedonia by the voice of a man, but finds himself coming first to a woman, Lydia, who would be a powerful force for the kingdom. We could go on and on and on. Here's the point. We may seem strange. In fact, we may seem downright ridiculous to the world, like some sort of weird cult in an egalitarian age for maintaining an all-male leadership in the church. We may face, maybe sooner than we imagine, civil penalties for our position. So be it. Our consciences are bound by the word of God, and here we stand. We can do no other. But let us never, never, in the process of standing firm in that sense, fail to appreciate. No, that's not strong enough. To relish to revel in, to celebrate and deliberately to depend upon the gifts and the graces given to our mothers and our sisters in Christ. The church cannot, and that is no hyperbole, the church cannot function without them. And this by divine design. Only the offices are restricted in the Bible, but the absolute dependence of the church on the faithful service of faithful Christian women and the need to nurture and grow and encourage those very gifts and never to stifle them, continues to this very day and until the Lord comes again. Amen.